They are, for me, they're the kind of uh, cheese dreams of literature. Hello and welcome to the Boundless Book Club, the podcast from the Emirates Literature Foundation in Dubai. We always like to take you down the rabbit hole. And today you're here with me, Andrea. And me, Ahlam. And today we're also going to be joined by actor, comedian, writer of fabulous children's books, Ben Miller. I am excited. I'm so excited. Before Ben joins us... I'd like to know which book you'd like to share with us today, Aklam. This this topic is so huge, and I think it's it's really difficult to fit it into one episode. Although we work in the field of stories, there's still so much that I've learned just researching for this episode. And I wanted to start with Emirati mythology and, and look into that. And, and what I've found, actually, is that not a lot of Emirati mythology has been uh, translated into English which um, is a shame and, and I think something that we should probably look into and try to work on because there are so many mythical uh, personalities that uh, we used to hear as children, you know, from our grandparents and passed on generation to generation in the Emirati culture, but they're all oral tales and we need to preserve them. I think, you know, they've been told in a couple of Arabic stories, the Bay of Bilhol uh, has a series that features these Emirati mythical uh creatures uh the fridge cartoon by Muhammad Said Harib features some of these characters as well um, and they were kind of created to put a bit of fear in in people in society so they're more sort of scary but also uh to create caution so for example one of the personalities is Omadouis and Omadouis is a really beautiful creature um, that comes out in the night and she smells amazing and she sort of lures the men towards her <laughs> and then when they follow her she will kill them and eat them up <laughs> and and myths and stories have existed for as long as we could really communicate right i think stories are the way in which human beings understand the world around us and learn how to deal with complex emotions and dynamics and also sort of connect human beings to the supernatural world. So it awakens a lot of spirituality into us so that we believe in things or wonder at least about things that are outside of our tangible world, right? Especially from a young age. So they, they play such an important role. I chose this beautiful book that I have at home. Uh, it's called the Shahnameh by uh, Ferdosi, who is a Persian poet that lived, um, that wrote this a thousand years ago. It's a very old book, but the book has actually been recreated and been retold in different editions. And the one that I have at home, which is the Shahnameh, the Epic of the Persian Kings, is, is it's a beautiful big coffee table book, but it's very graphic as well. It's got amazing uh, illustrations inside of all these stories of the kings of Persia. The illustrations in this book, version have kind of been uh, drawn in a way to appeal to like a more modern audience as well. And it's, um, and, and it has a lot of little hints in there that are outside the story as well, that to, to keep you wonder even more about the storylines, which is really, really interesting. When I was reading about this piece of work, it's interesting that the Persians 
didn't change their language to Arabic after they converted to Islam. And I was looking at why that is, but that's because their language is not rooted in, um, was not rooted in their pre-Islamic faith. Their language was actually rooted in mythology and stories and literature. So, which kept their language really strong even after they um, converted to Islam. And that's interesting. So that's like another really important role that myths and stories have played in, in preserving language. But this book, uh, I want to read to you just a lovely little, just two lines from the intro. And that really sums up, you know, how you should look at fairy tales and myths and legends when you start, before you start reading them. It says, ponder these tales, but don't call them fables or lies. Some of them conform to our reason, while others are truths that come to us in disguise. That's amazing. It is. And, and you know, it, it really is that because, um, you know, the stories of the Arabian Nights or this Shahnameh, which is a, a huge, basically one large poem that Ferdosia wrote over 33 years, collating oral tales of kings and kingdoms and love and lust and angels and demons and political intrigue of generations of Persian history into these amazing mythical stories. You know, you learn a lot about complex human emotion in there. You learn a lot about how human beings behave when they're faced with greed, even when you're the best ruler, uh, but when you're constantly praised for years on end, eventually that leads to you thinking you're untouchable and what those, you know, as human beings, even a king has moments of weaknesses and then what those things lead into. So it's just wonderful and, and, and a lovely, lovely read. I'd really recommend anyone who's not familiar with it to pick up um, any version, but this version particularly is a lovely uh, graphic novel. 100% added to my to-be-purchased list. <laughs> One thing that really struck me in, 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 while I was reading the stories is how um, empathy, the role that empathy plays in the stories. So the Turanians are the arch enemies of the kings of Persia in the book. And uh, there's scenes where the brother of the Turanian king or the marshal in their army are painted as really noble men. And so although they were the enemies in the book, uh, the stories um, show you how to still find empathy or find the good even in the arch enemies. And I thought that was really, really interesting. So they're giving them the respect that they deserve, even though they're the enemy. Right. Um, and there's, there's a lot of um, wonderful themes like that throughout the book. So I'd love to know what, what you've chosen for today's episode. Yeah, so, so I've got something a little bit more recent. I think most people are familiar with the story of the Iliad and Achilles, but you've probably never seen them quite like this. This is called The Silence of the Girls, and it's by Pat Barker, who is a very straightforward, very strong writer. She's taken this tale of this great battle and completely reframed it. So in the original story, we see Achilles as this really strong man, this, you know, this unbeatable fighter who is driven by honour and making his mark. This story is told mostly through the eyes of Briseis, who was a queen 
of a city that they plundered on the way to Troy. They destroyed the city, murdered all the men, all the men, all the boys, obviously her family, her husband, her father, her brothers. And then she, being the queen of this town, was given to Achilles as his trophy. So then we see this great battle from her perspective. And it's, it's so interesting because what it says on the back says, great Achilles, brilliant Achilles, shining Achilles, godlike Achilles. How the epithets pile up. We never call him any of those things. We call him the butcher. There's this um, really great part um, fairly on in the book where someone says to her, you never mention his looks. And it's true, I don't. I find it difficult. At that time, he was probably the most beautiful man alive, as he was certainly the most violent. But that's the problem. How do you separate a tiger's beauty from its ferocity or a cheetah's elegant from the speed of his attack? Achilles was like that. The beauty and the terror were two sides of a single coin. That's beautiful. When you get to part two of this book, it's quite jarring that suddenly we get a different perspective. We get Achilles' perspective. He never thinks about any of the women around him who serve him. What he thinks about is his best friend, Patroclus, and he thinks about the, the battle. The rest of it is just sort of landscape. He thinks no more of Briseis than he thinks of his sofa. Wow. And she, was, she says, you know, I watch him all the time. I know if he's eaten, I know if he's drinking, I will fill up his glass before he's finished it because my entire life depends on his mood. Wow. And that just shows how layered these stories are, that the retelling of them from a different perspective can change so much about the same story. It does make you think, what else in history do we need to see from a different perspective? Right, because all of history is written from perspective of whoever is telling those stories. So it was it's a really great book. And, and anyone who's read any of Pat Barker's books will know her style. It's very, very clear, very straightforward. And and in that lies its strengths, really. And you you see all the, you know, you see Achilles, but you also see um, Agamemnon and, and all these people that you'll know from Greek mythology. But just you see them in a different light. It's it's, it's really fa- fascinating. How interesting. I think you would like this story. Yeah, it sounds really interesting. I would love to, to read it. So I'm going to put that on my list for sure. This is the problem. Every time we speak, the list just grows longer. <laughs> I know. I just don't want to look behind me on these shelves because, you know, they're just like staring at me, these books all the time. <laughs> so much to be read and so little time. Are you ready to add some more books to the list. Should we talk to Ben Miller? Yes, let's do that. Ben, welcome to the Boundless Book Club. It's been four months since you were here in Dubai for the festival, but it feels like just yesterday. It's it's lovely to see you again. So have you been doing any writing since you left us? I did, yeah. I was writing, um, well, I really like writing when I'm filming, actually. So, I mean, there's a lot of downtime when you're filming. So, um, you know, you often find yourself marooned in your hotel room you know for days on end so that's when I that's when I you know I like to do uh, my writing then so yes I was working on a Christmas book I've got a new Christmas story called Secrets of a Christmas Elf that I've been writing so I was doing that I was doing (laughs) so before you joined us we were talking about a couple of classic myths and fairy tales and I know you've also drawn on a few classics in the day I fell into a fairy tale 
So in your opinion, um, I want to ask, what is it about old classics that makes us come back to them time and time again and makes writers like yourself want to reimagine or explore them in new ways? Well, for me, the thing about fairy tales is is the fact that they are ancient. It's the fact they seem to touch something very, very deep within all of us. And I think one of the um, challenges of an author, you know, you're an adult author writing for children, you know, one of the challenges is to is to try and find a story that will mean as much to a grown-up as it does to a child. And for me, fairy tales are a great place to start. You know, I kind of think of all of my stories as being fairy tales of one kind or another. And here's the thing about fairy tales. We will never know what they what they mean. They, they completely bypass our everyday mind, our everyday world, and they contact something very, very deep inside us. Things, uh, thoughts, feelings, fears, wishes that we can't even articulate, that we can't articulate clearly to ourselves. They, they're so deep rooted, I think. And this is one of the wonderful things about fairy tales for me as well. It, 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 you can approach it from another way. You can approach it from the direction of sort of story theory and the the theory beha- behind how you should create a story. That's kind of very interesting. My son's doing um, Key Stage 2 at the moment, so I was reading. I couldn't help, you know, reading some of the um, instruction they get at school for how to construct a story, and it says something like, um, you know, the character should have a goal, and then in the second, the beginning of the story, you set up what the character's goal is, and then in the middle of the story, you introduce some conflict, and at the end of the story, the character either achieves or doesn't achieve their goal, which I think is a is a really um, useful rule of thumb for many different kinds of stories. Absolutely hopeless when it comes to fairy tales. <laughs> I mean, a fairy tale breaks nearly all of those breaks nearly all of those rules. Um, they they are um, you know often the characters within fairy tales are, are not particularly they don't have great agency or they don't you know often the you know the the conflict is of a very unusual kind as like an evil witch or something. <laughs> it's not you know they are they are for me they're the kind of uh, cheese dreams of literature you know they are the they are the sort of um they're the completely um they're the completely uh numanistic sort of you know the completely other worldly uh, voice of of all of us and you know this is one of the fascinating things you go to any culture anywhere in the world and it starts to feel like the the roots of fairy tales are are the same, you know. They're, 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 you 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 come across the same kinds of stories being told in different ways, um, and you start to wonder whether, you know, the the template of fairy tales is something very use, very universal, something very that we all, you know, something that we all share in common. I was brought up on fairy tales. My parents are English teachers. So we 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 read lots of fairy tales at home from lots of different countries. So, for example, one of one of the um, one of my two favorite books of fairy tales I had as a child growing up were Chinese fairy tales. And it's extraordinary. Like you, every, 
every fairy tale you pick up, you feel like you've heard it before. Whether whether or not you whether or not you have or not, whether or not you've ever come across that particular telling of that story or even that particular story, there's something so familiar about it. Yeah, I mean, we definitely see that from because um, some of the fairy tales in the Arab world are so old, like the tales of the Arabian Nights or. Um, you know, and then and then um, you know we we will read things like uh, Hans Christian Andersen, and then you see similarities in some of the storylines and things like that. So there's a lot of um, stories that have been inspired by each other. Um, yeah, well, Shahrazad, Shahrazad was a big inspiration for my story. The day I um, fell into a fairy tale. Um, you know the the sort of day the whole denouement of the story is taken from Shahrazad. It's the it's the idea that in order to buy yourself some time, you start to tell someone else a really gripping <laughs> fairy tale. Um, and uh, I think one of the most you know one of the sort of obvious things in some ways to say about fairy tales, but one of the truest is that they are magic in themselves. There's a they cast a spell themselves. You listen to the beginning of a fairy tale and you absolutely have to know what happens next. Um, and of course, you know, they all deal with magic of sort of, of one form or another. But um, I absolutely loved the Arabian Nights when I was growing up. That's always been one of my favourites. And there are so many extraordinary stories in that, in that chain, in that chain, aren't there? I did want to ask if you have a favorite fairy tale because the, the day I fell into a fairy tale, we get um, we get little flavors of Alice in Wonderland and Hansel and Gretel, and I wondered because there's so many different stories you could have put into that. Is that because they have a special significance for you? Um, yes, they are. You know, I mean, I, also I was looking for fairy tales that were essentially telling the same story but from different um you know from slightly different angles and and there is a knot in in in, um the day i fell into a fairy tale i should say for um anybody you know (laughs) uh uh, you know anybody who's wondering what the story is about so it's it's essentially about a girl called lana and she discovers that there's a trapdoor in the pick and mix of her local supermarket that leads to the land of fairy tales and which suite you choose on which day at which time will lead you into a different part of any given fairy tale so you have a kind of a sort of almost like a bus timetable of which um of which particular sweet trapdoor you need to go through to be <laughs> to, to get into which fairy tale so she goes into her fairy tale favorite fairy tale sleeping beauty um and one of the things that's always fascinated me about that fairy tale is we only usually tell half of it you know in the older telling of it uh, there was a second part to the story where uh, Sleeping Beauty then goes on to have a child, and I wanted to deal with that. Um, I wanted to deal with also with that part of the fairy tale as well. But um, at the very end of um, the day I fell into a fairy tale, there's a reference I think to a juniper tree, and the reason I I have I mention a juniper tree is that happens to be my favourite fairy tale of all, which is a Grimm's fairy tale, um, and it's absolutely extraordinary the juniper tree it's um there's quite a dark i think bruno bettelheim has written a fantastic book um i think it's called the uses of enchantment about the meaning of fairy tales he takes quite a freudian interpretation of fairy tales and he uh, the bruno um uh bettelheim uh 
interpretation of, for example, Sleeping Beauty would in, would it, would would say that's that's really a story about being a teenager. You know, I've got a teenager at the moment, and he he's, <laughs> he is definitely Sleeping Beauty. I mean, he's really aware. We came home at sort of three o'clock in the afternoon the other day, still asleep in bed. Our sixteen-year-old. You know, it's a time when you sleep and when enormous changes in enormous changes happen. And and Bruno Bettelheim, with his Freudian interpretation, chooses to read Sleeping Beauty in, in, in that kind of way. I don't know what the Freudian interpretation of the juniper tree would be, but essentially the, the there is a moment within it where I love the fact that characters often die in fairy tales and become animals or become you know, they they transform. There is no such thing, funnily enough, as death somehow in a fairy tale. Any character that dies can kind of can kind of just come back in some way. And in the juniper tree, it's really odd. I mean, it's kind of it's very dark. And I don't know how you put it in a children's book, but there's a there's a part of the story where I think some children actually get a child gets buried or its bones get buried under the juniper tree and then come back to life. It's it's really um it's a really wonderful story, but you you sort of, and it makes sense sort of while you're reading it. And then when you think about it afterwards, you sort of really start to wonder what, what the whole thing was about. It feels very, very deep. I need to look that up now. In my house, we are, we're really big fans of, of The Boy Who Made the World Disappear. Thank you. Which is lovely. And it combines some scientific concepts with actual magic. But really, it's a story about a boy who struggles with his temper. And then he's given a black hole and a string and he starts chucking everything that makes him angry into that. And there's, a, there's this, this page. If you, if you have it handy, could I ask you to read page 20? While the kids enjoyed every single page, I think I particularly enjoyed this bit. <laughs> yeah, so Harrison has a little bit of a temper and he goes to a birthday party and instead of a balloon, they give him a black hole on <laughs> a piece of string. So this is, uh, this is Harrison at the birthday party talking to Shelley, the birthday party organiser. I hate you, Harrison barked. I wish I could put you in the black hole. I wish I could put everything into a black hole. Like I care, bellowed Shelley at the top of her voice. Harrison was so surprised to be yelled at, he stopped in his tracks. You think I want to do this, howled Shelley. You think I want to be a pretend astronaut? I want to be an astronomer, not a children's entertainer. Silence fell in the room as the children sat with open mouths. Shelley wasn't acting like grown-ups were supposed to at all. You're not a real astronaut, asked Marcus Down. Of course I'm not, cried Shelley. Just like you're not real rockets, planets, stars or angels. Katie Broad started to cry. (laughs) (laughs) How much of just general parenting and your life went into this book? Everything about parenting goes into my books. Yeah, I mean, it's like, and Harrison himself, you know, there's a, the I write about my children. You know, the, it's a bit of a cheat, really, but I write about my own children. So Harrison himself, he had, he really uh, did have a sort of anger, like a rage problem when he was uh, when he was little, um, which I which you fully understand. It's a great, you you understand the urges, and you understand, um, you know, you completely sort of you completely get it. Um, 
and uh, you know and and as a parent how many times have i did i lose it with harrison when he was shouting how many times did i also then lose it which kind of undermines your authority as a parent in that moment but but also is honest you know there's, there's also you know also is a um honesty and children appreciate honesty and you know if you do lose it with your kids i find you can apologize afterwards and you know explain how you wish you'd behaved better but this was the reason that you did it you hope that they can you know forgive you for that um you're also you 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 know you're you're being real you know being real as a human being and and being honest as a human being and i think children you know children learn from and, and appreciate that but yes, it's all it's all it's all very much based on my own experience of parenting and being a kid and, and being and I should say, yeah, being a child myself, which I remember very, very clearly. And I remember this age very, very clearly as well. I remember this age from seven to eleven, which are the children that I'm I'm writing for. I remember that particularly, particularly clearly, which helps, you know. Do you feel a responsibility to try to help? children with the stories or is it just sort of a happy coincidence if someone learns to control their rage by reading the book no I think what the the message of the story for me is the most important that's the foundation of the whole thing and I want to I want my books to parent children as much as I want I want what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to write books that are really really entertaining that kids can't put down but that that teach them some kind of that teach them good values and teach them uh, and hopefully help them in navigating the world and sort of I hope without preaching um, kind of set them some kind of example I want the characters to set them some kind of example of uh, so for example Harrison in the story the boy who made the world disappear um, I said I always you know I like to base my stories on fairy tales this one's actually based on a fable it's the King Midas fable obviously um and the, you know the they sort of be careful what you wish for in a way but the idea that we think tend to think of anger as a negative thing and anger is not is not necessarily just a negative thing it's how what you do with your anger you know anger is something all emotions are th- something we need to experience and we need to we need to feel but then you have a choice about at least if you give yourself the opportunity to feel the emotion you then have a choice as to how you act um and it's to try and um for me the story is really about that gap between and trying to introduce that gap um between experience of experiencing a feeling and then deciding whether or not to take some kind of action and what that action should be so for example whereas harrison is experiencing anger a selfish kind of anger about things he wants to do that people won't let him do there are other characters that are experiencing anger Shelley for example experiences a genuine anger because as a as um as a woman she has always wanted to be an astronomer and that's been denied to her and she has a justifiable anger if you like um and the story is really about how anger can be a good thing if you use it as fuel to make to change the world for the better then that's really fascinating the way that you've just explained anger and contemplated the emotion so in your next book um can we expect to see any more pets nephews nieces <laughs> who who is the star of the next next book so my story i'm writing at the moment it's called um the night we got stuck in a story and basically harrison and lana 
I've never written about their grandparents. I wanted to write a story about their grandparents. So they go to stay with their grandparents. Lana's grandmother is reading her a story at night. And Lana's favourite story is the story of Beowulf, you know, the sort of monster that terrorises a village that then gets, then the hero, you know, Beowulf does his best to sort of battle. And I wanted to, yeah, so I wanted to write a story where, Lana could then go into that story, into into Beowulf, a bit like in uh, the day I fell into a fairy tale. So, the idea that she's then in this world um, where there is this this sort of mysterious creature, um, and I guess I wanted to write a story a, a, a bit about how. Yeah, I, I suppose I wanted to sort of update that that view, you know, so to try and see things from. So the monster in in the Beowulf that Lana visits is a bit more of a mirage and turns out, and it's about, the story is about the how there is no, there are no monsters, if you like. The story is about how every animal has its right to live as it would wish to live. And Lana's journey is from seeing certain kinds of animals as, I guess it's about you know I should yeah I mean it's a, it's about a journey from her from going to seeing humans as being somehow in charge of the planet to seeing that all all animals are equal by the end it's a kind of yeah it's a sort of um, I've got very interested recently in you know this this idea of uh, rewilding and the idea that um, the scary thing that we're losing so many species from the planets from the planet because we're not um you know we're not uh giving them anywhere to live um so it's that uh yeah it's that sort of idea well that's you know that's the thing with stories and and, and fairy tales it's 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 a way of teaching children also the things that they pro- maybe haven't interacted with yet but the difficult things that are ahead i mean the thing about all fairy tales is the thing that they do have in common for me at the end of it is that they are usually about children and they're usually about children succeeding without the help of grown-ups and in that way they deal with children's biggest fear which is how am I going to be able to navigate the world when I grow up if my mummy and daddy weren't here how would I cope um how would I tackle the difficult things that there are in life and fundamentally fairy tales teach children that they are capable of handling anything that the world will throw at them and i think that is the most powerful message you can give a child um, and the most empowering message as well as well as being you know um emotionally powerful it just it genuinely grants them agency within their own world and when you package it in a really fun adventure fairy tale it's a little bit like hiding the vegetables as well they get this wonderful message but really they don't even know it yes i've never heard it described like that that's such a good way of putting it that's such a good way of putting it it's like it's like uh, it's exactly like that. It's like chopping the greens, green beans up very fine and, and mix, <laughs> mixing it into the potato. Yeah, it's exactly like that. It's, um, you know, you never uh, never want somebody to read the stories and think uh, and feel like there's a sort of heavy message there. You want the story just to be exciting. You want, to, you know, 
kids just to be turning the page and what's going to happen next oh my goodness there's a monster in the village and how is she gonna you know how, how is she gonna catch the monster you know that's the, that's the story and then and then hope hopefully um the kind of stories i like are the ones that i that then they leave me kind of thinking a bit sort of afterwards and i've kind of you know maybe a couple of days later i think oh actually maybe that's what that's about <laughs> Ben, when can we expect to see your next book on the shelves? My next novel is coming out in September. And then my, I think October would be then the next one. So my Christmas book, I think, will then be out. Will then be out in October. This one's called The Night I Got Stuck in a Story. The Night I Got Stuck in a Story. Or The Night We Got Stuck in a Story, I think. Um, Because it's a story about Harrison and Lana. And then uh, Secrets of a Christmas elf. So I did a, a Christmas book last last year. Um, the first book I wrote was a Christmas book called The Night I Met Father Christmas. Then last year I did a book called Diary of a Christmas Elf, <laughs> which was so much fun. I've written another diary of a Christmas elf, but this this one I wanted to write uh, the diary of Father Christmas's daughter. So this is um, written by Holly Christmas. It's Holly Christmas's diary. And it's about the events, the sort of, uh, well, I mean, all, all kinds of high dudgeon goes on leading up to, to Christmas. Um, I think, it, I'm also not giving too much away to say at one point, Father Christmas gets kidnapped. Um, and Holly Christmas has to step into the, step into those, um, well, rather oversized leather boots. <laughs> That's rather serious. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not very serious in the book. <laughs> It sounds more serious. It sounds more serious than it is. So as you heard, Ben's magical children's books are available now for more bookshops and there are more coming very soon. So look out for those. Um, we can't recommend the ones we've read enough. And stay tuned for more book recommendations to keep you going through the summer. <laughs> Thanks, guys. That's so fun. <laughs> <laughs>